but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. We have literally nothing to talk about this week. That's not true. We have lots to talk about. There's just no tennis being played. Right. We did have to crowdsource some content, so thank you for... People responded within minutes, seconds, it seems. So we have a small mailbag at the end of the episode. Most of what we're going to be talking about is the cancellation of Indian Wells which is the biggest tournament cancellation in tennis since World War II. It's almost as if you were keeping yourself alive for this moment, but this is not how you expected it <laughs> no, to happen. No, no, I don't even want to make light of it, so I won't. Yes, I'm not saying that you're happy that it was canceled, but historically speaking, we'd be dishonest if we didn't mention that this is your least favorite tournament. You can't stand it. Right. That being said, I feel a lot for the people who had planned to go, who had bought tickets, some of whom had already arrived, for the press who had made their way many on their own dime, for the casual and seasonal workers who probably worked at the tournament, who had made plans for these few weeks. For the players. For the players. Especially those players who don't make a lot of money and already finance their trips. The logistical nightmare caused by this late cancellation is just hard to fathom. We had been paying attention to what was going on with COVID-19 and tennis for a while, but didn't really feel that anything was was immediately at risk of being canceled up until like a week ago. Because mm-hmm. we, we got our credentials from Miami. We were all set to go to Miami. And then you see things starting to develop and you're like, well, wow, like this could spiral out of control quickly. And the first sign that that we got that something was really going to happen was on the eve of Indian Wells starting. This would have been Sunday night sometime. We were watching mm-hmm. TV and we caught wind from, I think, John Wertheim that there was an emergency Players' Council meeting. Yes. At 7.56 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, to be precise, John Wertheim tweeted, hearing there are emergency Player Council meetings underway in Indian Wells right now implying that both the WTA and ATP players' councils were meeting. And you know if the women are being brought along, then it's serious. <laughs> well, he didn't say they were together. But <laughs> but the players' councils were meeting. Less than two hours after Wertheim dropped that little tidbit, at 9.42, Indian Wells, the BNP Paribas Open, sent out a press release on Twitter saying that the tournament is cancelled. Well, they they were very specific to not say the word cancelled. <laughs> they said it will not occur. Be held. It, it will, will not, not be held. It will not be held. At this time. Ben Rothenberg pointed that out on Twitter, saying that they've been very persistent in that language. Because Tommy Haas has since said that we are going to be trying to hold this event at some point later on in the year. They are not committing to the word postpone either. Because it's not confirmed that it will be held later in the year. They're just hoping. So there's the immediate shock that Indian Wells, the fifth largest tennis tournament on the calendar, 
is for all intents and purposes cancelled, right? People are just, people are shook. Denis Shapovalov tweeted as much, saying, quote, I'm shook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, that and was it. I think he wrote about 12 bars about it, too. Oh, my God. Dropping later this week. The immediate reaction ran the gamut. Hovering over all of this is the uncertainty around this virus and what it can do, what's to come, and and how these large sporting events and and public gatherings play a part in in spreading the disease, right? Mm-hmm. It's this push and pull between being overly cautious and not cautious enough. Right. That's that seems to be where folks fall on either side of the fence. And one of the things that came out in the immediate aftermath of this cancellation was that there was a recent patient who had tested positive for coronavirus, COVID-19, in the Coachella Valley. Yes. And so folks were like, really? You're going to cancel this tournament over one person with this virus? Right. But Riverside County had issued a public health emergency in the wake of that one case. And that, mind you, that's one confirmed case. There could be other sick people in the county who either had not presented themselves to health officials, had not taken a test yet. Since then, there have been a few more cases in Riverside County, but the clear and present danger here is that it is a fairly elderly population compared to the rest of the country. And if you've been to a tennis tournament, you know that a large portion of the volunteers at tennis tournaments, because make no mistake about it, these are not paid employees. The ticket takers, the bag checkers, a lot of the concession workers, the the ushers. ushers. Yeah, many or most of them are volunteers. Correct. Paid in kind with tickets to sessions when they're not working. And the people who have the time, the disposable time and income to fill these roles tend to be retirees. Mm -hmm. And so I understand where there's an abundance of caution to protect a population in a city that's already skewing largely older. But then you factor in that not only are the attendees going to be older, but the people working there are going to be older as well. It's kind of a hotbed for spread. And these are the folks who are at the highest risk demographically. And so as we go through this episode, I think the the key here is that we're not providing a lot of new information because we don't know that much. And I think, personally, I think it's a good quality in other people when they know and are honest about what they don't know. Does that make sense? Oh my God. <laughs> You just got back telling me yesterday how your boss was like, you know, you know what you don't know. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're you're like puffing up yourself here. Well, I didn't share that. You did. <laughs> and it, what I don't you're, know. You're like teasing me with this, this nugget. Mm-hmm. What I don't know could fill a library. But we need to be honest about that. There were a lot of opinions in the wake of the cancellation of this tournament. Everyone it seemed like needed to get their thoughts out there. And we were just kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> um, it probably could have been timed better, but I feel like the health officials know more than we do. And caution is probably wise. This disease is looking a bit more serious than I thought it was initially. And, you know, I read things that have since been debunked about how it actually wasn't very easily spread. Now it's clear that it is very, very infectious, even if most people our age will be fine. 
okay, fine. I am absolutely on board with an abundance of caution in this situation. That does not mean that there aren't potentially sinister decisions being made by billionaires and corporations that have their best interest at heart as well. That dovetails oh, yeah. with the public. Of course. Right? Because, right. because I suspect, I have to go on record here saying I don't know for sure, but I suspect that insurance and recouping insurance played a factor in this. Right. This was reported by Christopher Clary of the New York Times that both the ATP and WTA floated the idea of playing the tournament without spectators. That was turned down by the tournament. We don't know exactly why. Maybe insurance is part of it. It is obviously a huge expense to mount a tournament while giving refunds to all your spectators and not getting money from concessions and everything. However, Indian Wells is owned by Larry Ellison, who's one of the richest men in the United States. I have to cringe a bit at the idea that the people who are really bearing the risk and the hardship here are the people who work for the tournament or participate in the tournament. We know that top players will be fine. Their income is is secure. They're wealthy. But a lot of the players ranked, say, number 40 or 50 or below, or the players who were coming to play in qualifying, they already paid for their tickets here and back. You know, they paid for their lodging. Who knows if they'll get any refunds. It is a considerable expense to fly out here and stay, and now the tournament's canceled. So I haven't heard anything about any sort of income protection for them. Well, not income protection, but... The, I've, I've read that the players will be put up for a week. Or yeah, they'll be allowed to stay and practice. Put up lodging as well. Right. Meanwhile, John Millman said he was scheduled to hit with a top player. When that top player pulled out of their practice session, John was not allowed to practice on the court. That's interesting. His words saying that he wasn't a big enough name yeah. to secure the court mm. after the fact. So personally, I'd like to hear more on what the tournament and perhaps the ATP and WTA are doing for their players, many of whom are going through considerable financial hardship because of this decision. And uh, who knows what the rest of the season is going to look like, right? Of course, there are the the many people who work concessions, uh, cleaning the Indian Wells Tennis Garden, the workforce that is necessary for this tournament to happen that often get forgotten about. Or not even considered. Right. They're not making money for this these few weeks. They may have arranged to go to Palm Springs to work this event. What happens? You know, it's about scale, right? Because say Larry Ellison takes a hit of five hundred million dollars for this tournament. In theory, just say that happens. He can bear that brunt more so than somebody can bear the brunt of losing two thousand dollars for working seasonally. That well, they're yes. counting on this money. That a player who doesn't have a coach, who is scraping funds together to go from tournament to tournament, who is maybe hoping to qualify, get that first round prize money at the very least, get those very few points. Those things are a means of survival for these folks, whereas that $500 million is not. Do you know what I mean? So like, we can be blinded by the largesse of figures being lost, you know, because we can't even fathom Mm. being in that stratosphere. But like in the grand scheme of things... It's like chump change. Right. And I we say this a lot, but some people think that being a tennis player is a very glamorous occupation, which in many ways it can be. 
But in reality, a lot of professional players' net income is working class level or below. You know, when we're talking about net, all of their expenses taken out. You mentioned that the top players will be fine. Yes, financially they will be. But there are players who lost a lot of points and will not be able to get them back. Venus Williams will be ranked outside the top 100 now. You could make the argument that she'd have been there anyway because of how poorly she's been playing. But but she didn't have the, the opportunity fact is that to she's defend. heading into a sunshine swing where that's really the majority of the points that she has to defend. And now she was unable to defend her points from last year in Indian Wells. And now she's ranked just below Leila Fernandez at like 114, 115. Right, right. Dominic team, as far as top players on the men's side, will lose, uh, what, a thousand points for mm-hmm. winning last year? So it it's a matter of scale, obviously. But it sucks for a lot of people for different reasons. Was it the right decision? I, I don't know. Again, probably. I did some reading about the actual science behind COVID-19 today, which I found very interesting. A clinical study was just released by scientists in Munich that was just published, not peer-reviewed yet, but it was found that people with the virus shed very high amounts of the virus early on, which is why the spread is so efficient and so quick. After about 10 days, it seems that even if you still test positive, you probably are no longer infectious. The thing that distinguishes this disease from something like SARS is that infected people shed so much of the virus early on, and often before they even know they have symptoms, that it makes passing it along really easy. That being said, it probably is a good idea to curb huge events with tens of thousands of people coming from all over the world and putting them in a confined space. That's probably a good idea. Is it abundantly cautious? Yes, but we've seen what the lack of caution can do. We are a political podcast, but we don't often talk politics. We cannot talk about this without the added context that the United States and its government led by Donald Trump, I can't believe I just said that name on this podcast, (laughs) has been actively misleading the public as to what the capability of this virus is. And when we know that people who are 80 and older stand a one in six chance of dying based on the statistics to date, and that we know that it is folks who are 60 and over who are most likely, disproportionately likely, to suffer adverse effects from this virus, it makes sense that a demographic, that a tournament with this kind of demographic would be that cautious. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But it also makes sense when we consider just how much we do not know about what's going on with COVID-19 in the U.S. because because of the obfuscation by the government, by Trump specifically. Right. I mean, misinformation, ignorance, like downplaying how, how easily spread the disease is. Of course, there's a wing of the Republican Party who was trying to convince you that this is Democratic Party propaganda. That shit's been on Fox News, Fox Business. Well, he himself says that it's a, it's a hoax. Right. But now he's got Republican congressmen and senators in quarantine because they came into contact with someone at CPAC. Mm-hmm. His newly hired chief of staff, being one of them, yeah. has yet to report to duty. A famous drunk driver, Matt Gates, is in quarantine after he mocked the disease on the House floor 
Well, he's not in quarantine because of that. No. <laughs> he's in quarantine because he may have come into contact with a very real disease that he made fun of. By wearing a gas mask. Right. In his official capacity mm-hmm. as a representative. So the point is, so many countries who are dealing with this and have reported much larger numbers in the United States, be it South Korea, be it Italy, China, Iran, they have larger numbers because they have been testing more. Right. It goes to reason that if you test more, you'll have more positive cases. The United States has not been testing or has not shown the capability to test in the, the, the numbers required that these other countries have. And so what that means is we know that those cases are out there. We just don't know when they're going to pop up. Mm-hmm. I mean, Americans are disincentivized to go to the hospital or to the doctor because of cost. We know this. But in China, they, I mean, they locked down the city of Wuhan, a city of like double digit million people. South Korea is seeing a decrease in new cases, which is amazing, but their infrastructure has been impressive. World class. Italy has basically locked down the entire country. Originally, it was just part of northern Italy. Now it's the whole country. You know, let's share some good news about coronavirus. No, but wait. (laughs) I wanted to finish making clear that point, Mm. that the reason why an abundance of caution is good in Indian wells is because it's likely worse than what we know it to be now. So when folks are saying, oh, it was just one case, what's the deal with that? The numbers are not that big in the United States. The numbers are there and they're coming and they're going to explode. But the reason why it hasn't thus far is because of the criminal lack of testing. The good news about COVID-19 is that most infected people develop antibodies very quickly within 6 to 12 days. And this is shown by around 80% of people who have the disease not developing a severe version of the disease. So most people will not suffer permanent lung damage. It's possible, but most healthy people will develop antibodies fairly quickly. You talked about the the world-class response from South Korea and, and other countries that have been affected disproportionately so far. And... I want to bring up the fact that when this happened, and Tommy Haas was saying, well, we'll try and make this happen later on, Sven Grunfeld, interacting with Brad Gilbert on Twitter, said, well, you know, we could just cancel the the Asian swing and we could have it then. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, what? And a friend of the show, Frith, in Australia, who just, I'm so jealous, just attended the ICC Women's T20 Final at the MCG that was a banner, standout, stone-cold smash hit wonder for women's sport. Mm -hmm. This is cricket, for those who don't know. MCG is Melbourne Cricket Ground. Mm -hmm. It was the largest and most well-attended women's sporting event in history. Something like 90,000 people packed the MCG to watch Australia deliver a smackdown. Any women's sport. Any women's sport. Cricket. Katy Perry was there singing about roaring. And it was just, it was an amazing event. And Miss Alyssa Healy showed up and showed out. So Frith, uh, quote, tweeted him and said, What makes you think that the U.S. is going to have this handled before Asia? That is a very good question. Dude, 
South Korea has this under control for the most part at this point. The U.S. has shown no aptitude in dealing with this. Mm-hmm. But it's like this this uh, constant need to erase the Asian swing of tennis. Like it doesn't matter that it's useless, that people don't show up. Why is it there? Why is it continuing to expand in Asia? You know, I actually, I would propose something. I feel that the Asian swing makes more sense in February and March. I would actually like the so-called sunshine double to move to after the U.S. Open. That's just my feeling. Write a letter. Not because of this situation, but it actually got me thinking. Okay. It will never happen because Indian Wells and Miami have, a, I would say, an inflated sense of importance. In many ways, aren't. (laughs) In what ways are those? (laughs) History. Okay. Tradition. What is the likelihood, though, of Indian Wells being able to fit this in the rest of the year? Realistically, like where assume that that the majority of the tennis season does not get affected by COVID-19 going forward and there aren't cancellations. Which what, is which is a big assumption. Yeah. I, I don't think it happens this year, to be totally honest. I don't see it. Where, first of all, where in the schedule is there a spot for it? It's a long ass tournament. They need two weeks for it. I guess they could they could shorten it. They could make the draw smaller. If the Olympics gets canceled... But if the Olympics are cancelled, is if Indi- the, is Indian Wells going to have its shit together by right, then? Is right. is the virus going to be under control in the Coachella Valley? Like right. If this is a world health crisis for several months and the Olympics get cancelled, why would you host the event in July or August? It, like if this is still going on, I don't think Indian Wells happens this year at all. There just there are no spaces on the calendar. We know that the men's season goes well into November. The women's ends at the end of October. I just personally don't see it happening. But again, there is so much we don't know. There's so much up in the air. At this moment, Miami announced that it is going forward, but they're monitoring the situation closely. We, at this point, we have no idea if Miami will happen. They say it's going to happen, but I'm ready for anything at this point. The players were annoyed, quite a few of them, that they found out about this cancellation via social media. Right. Uh, tennis Angren, Serana Kirstea, Kirsten Flipkins. That guy, Tennis Angren, like, he can say things that I agree with, and just the, the smugness with which he <laughs> says it, and like the, the, what's it, the snarky, not even snarky, because it's not cutting our smart, it's just like flippantly glib. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's just something like <laughs> slimy about it. Whoa. Yes. As Constance Wu said on Fresh Off the Boat, the garbage man is right. I can understand how it'd be annoying to find out that your job has called you off (laughs) via social media. However, per Ben Rothenberg, the players were also sent an email contemporaneously to the press release. You know, how often do you check your email? Are they using their personal email or their work email? When you get to the age of 25 to 30, you have multiple emails. Yes, I don't know which email account it goes to. I have like 10 of them at this point. Just saying, as a point of information, the players did get an email, but it did go out on social media at the same time, which I get. This is this is a public kind of job. This affects a lot of people in addition to players. I, I get the annoyance, but it also is not like a, a source of outrage for me. Of course, I'm not a player, so maybe I don't get it. I think it, it, but they were notified. Maybe there needs to be a WhatsApp group for like a thousand tennis players. Probably. Like the moment you hit the big leagues, the main tours, you put your number in this 
WhatsApp group, and it's used for very specific things.、Mm-hmm. So Stefanos Tsitsipas can spam you with gothic print quotes that he stole <laughs> from the internet. Is that it? You're not going to get Stefanos Tsitsipas sending you pictures allegedly of Manila, pretending that he's there, or what have you, like just doing all kinds of mess in this WhatsApp group. That's not happening, right?、Mm-hmm. This is very specific for super important things. It's like when the bat phone rings, you know. Like Gotham is in is in dire straits, right? <laughs> like when the red phone rings, like、mm. this is important. I need to check this out. It's not some email buried somewhere. Whether it's a fine print about Meldonium or a cancellation of an event that you may miss. Sure, that's a great proposal. So we're not entirely sure what the players' councils have shared with their membership. We don't know. It's not entirely clear what will happen with ranking points. But I, I think we have to assume that the ranking system will go on as normal. We know how these Indian Wells points will be dealt with. They'll just drop off, and that's it. My question、sure. is, will that still be tenable if it's like two months in a row of cancelled events? Right. Are folks gonna lose points and just not recoup them at all, or have any chance to recoup them? Because at this point, in theory, you have the chance to get those Indian Wells points back at some point down the year. Perhaps, but it could just end up that you just lose two months worth, two three months worth of points, and then that's just that. I don't know if at that point then there needs to be some other kind of adjustment. So, what happens to Miami, Charleston, the European clay swing, Roland Garros, Wimbledon? We do not know. It Rome is absolutely in doubt at this point because the country is in total lockdown. How long that will last,、right. we don't know. But I imagine that all of the planning that needs to go on between now and May, when the tournament happens, a lot of it has to be on pause at the moment. I can't see Rome happening at all. What I do hope is that if these decisions are to be made, that they're made more quickly. Like we cannot have a repeated situation week after week where journalists are already on site, players are already on site. Qualifying is about to start, and then everything is just upended. Like that's not tenable. It's quite frankly disrespectful. Right. If that keeps happening, given the precedent that's already been set,、mm-hmm. I think you could argue that because Riverside County Public Health leaned on Indian Wells, that that's the reason it was canceled, and that Miami could feasibly still go on. I I get that. I think Miami is like a total toss up at this point. Right now, they're saying they're working with both tours on sharing best practices as far as containing this risk, and they're also following CDC guidelines. At the same time, Indian Wells released a pretty rigorous set of guidelines as far as hygiene,、uh, suspending interactions between fans and players and officials, and I felt at the time that it was a pretty professional response. To what seemed like a small threat, and as the threat has grown,、uh, I don't know what the appropriate response is. That's not for us to decide. What we will see, and we've started to see it, is that potentially this outbreak, this pandemic, will cause the way things are done in many different fields to change. Right. We have. I mean, we have companies in Toronto who are instructing their employees to work from home until further notice. Which is out of an abundance of caution. Well, there is a very small percentage of people who can do that. Definitely, definitely. And 
Right. That's another thing. A lot of people who work in the service industry, for example, do not have paid sick leave, even in a country that has much better employment laws than the United States. Darden Restaurants, which owns Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, they used to own Red Lobster, has implemented a paid sick leave program and has said on social media that this will be a permanent benefit even after this crisis is over. If you have ever worked in the restaurant industry in North America, you know this is massive. Nobody pays for sick leave mm. in the it, restaurant it's industry. Huge. It's huge. I am skeptical about the implementation of it, about how mm-hmm. managers will nickel and dime you out of those sick leaves and punish you with your schedule for doing so. Oh, most definitely. So, like, it's not... It's a start, but it doesn't change the culture of restaurant working overnight. No, definitely not. But it is it is a very big step. Uh, let's call it a gesture at this point. Mm. But so many people do not have the luxury of staying at home because their income is dependent on them being at work. What does it mean for, you know, tennis players? We don't know. Is there a paid sick leave policy in the ATP and WTA? Uh, no. There is not. We know that there is not. And like I said, in many ways, some of the lower ranked players are are kind of on a, you know, paycheck to paycheck basis. A lot of a lot of us in North America in the so-called middle class are one minor emergency away from being impoverished. We we know this. If a restaurant closes for two months, can those workers survive those two months without pay? In the same way that we have to ask the question, can the players ranked 100 and above survive being without tournaments to play for an extended period? Right. So this is an, uh, an ever-evolving situation. I'm sure there'll be new information to come out tomorrow, the day after. We don't have all the answers. We will just have to wait and see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I understand that a lot of you are probably feeling a lot of anxiety about coronavirus. I am. I'm trying to remain realistic and grounded. And I'll use some kind of therapy talk right now and tell you that feeling anxious about this is very normal. For those listeners who might be in Korea or Italy or Germany or China or Japan, I can't imagine what it's like for you right now, but we sympathize and we're thinking about you. And please know that we're not downplaying the seriousness of what's happening. There were actually tennis tournaments that happened last week. Yes. We may not get tennis for a while, so let's recap that. Monterey had some interesting interesting developments, I would say. You said Monterey like, wow, what a moment. (laughs) What happened in Monterey? Leila Annie Fernandez, the Canadian youngster, continued her rapid rise reaching the quarterfinals, losing to the eventual champion, Alina Svitolina. Sloan Stevens won a match. That's something. Lost to this Canadian child, Fernandez. She's 17. Okay. Let's not call okay. her a child. <laughs> sorry, like sorry was, Sloan Rangers. That was intended to inflame. It was. But Alina Svitolina has had a rough go of it in 2020. She was four and six going into Monterey. She needed this badly. And she got it. She was uh, rolling through the field, really, in straight sets until she got to the final, playing a three-set marathon against Boskova. Boskova, who herself was due for a good result, and she endeared herself to lots of fans. 
both locally in Mexico and internationally. She spoke a little Spanish with the fans. People just find her charming and very sweet. As per Noel Harmony, she tweeted that each member of the WTA Top 10 now currently holds a title, with Svidalina winning this title. Some folks I saw in reply to her was like, wow, Svidalina has never won a title? What are you doing? What are you doing? Dude. I don't understand. Like, that's not it. No, currently has a title. She's won a bunch of big titles. Kim Kleisters was back, losing to Kanta in straight sets in her first match. Again, Kim didn't look bad at all. Came up against a player who is younger and right now just better. Guess who's back? Jack Sock is back. Mm-hmm. Rock'em Sock'em Sock. Yeah, and uh, that's all. Sophia Kennan? That's all? <laughs> no, Jack Sock has, has turned around his career in a pretty big way. He was unranked a month wow, ago. Wow, you just went from zero to 60 faster than Rihanna no, just I'm, now. I am trying to be fair. A month ago, we remarked that, wow, Jack is getting a lot of wild cards for somebody who literally is unranked. But he has put together some wins. He reached a final at a challenger this week. You say at a challenger like I don't know her. I don't, I don't know what I don't remember is. which one it is. It was the Oracle Challenger in Indian oh, Wells. And that was like the draw there was serious. Mm-hmm. Francis TFO was there. He beat the number one seed in the round of 32, Ugo Umber, in straight sets. He beat Dunskoy. He beat Dennis Kudla. He beat Young America Nakashima before eventually losing 6-4-6-4 to Steve Johnson in the final. I didn't watch any of that. I am sure you all are shocked to learn that fact. But I'm told that Jack Sock was quite ornery all week, despite the fact he was actually winning tennis matches for the first time since the Titanic sank. I don't believe it. That's very out of character. Jack is always a very sweet and well-mannered young man. It's ridiculous. (laughs) Sonia Kennan got back in the winner's circle, winning in Lyon. She's actually up to number three now in the world. Is this live rankings or official rankings? These are the live rankings, so I stand partially corrected. Right, because we still haven't heard official word on what's happening with the rankings, right? You need to let go of that. (laughs) That's not happening. People are not keeping their ranking points. Okay, I'm just saying. We're using a site that has a, a specific formula that has gone forward. Yes, Indian Wells points dropped off, so Canon is now up to number three. Okay. Provisionally. The Indian Wells 125K series tournament on the WTA side also had a loaded draw, like that challenger on the men's side. Veras Vonareva has been out for eight months with a wrist injury, is like, what, 35, 36 years old. She had a huge week. She beat Sam Stozer. Laura Ziegemund, the number one player, Siniakova, before losing to Misaki Doi in the semifinals. Losing is a bit harsh there. She had to withdraw from the tournament. Oh, she issued sorry. a walkover. Right. And because of Victoria Azarenka's withdrawal from Indian Wells, Vera Zvonareva got a direct entry with her protected ranking. Unfortunately, she pulled out of Indian Wells, and then Indian Wells was canceled. Unfortunately for Zvonareva, what we've seen in her comeback in the second career, she's had quite a few good results and not been able to see them through. This is not the first time that she's made it to the back end of a a smaller tournament before having Mm -hmm. to retire or withdraw after beating some decent players. Right. 
Irina Camelia Begu won that title, beating Doi in the final. I mean, that's about it for the results, really. That's it. It's really only one week to recap. We're going to have a little bit of fun here. We think it's, by and large, terrible. But we're still going to have some fun with it. What? This ATP segment that came out. On Sunday, it was the same day. Uh, we, we began Sunday with this ATP segment, and it ended with the cancellation of Indian Wells. It was quite an inglorious bookend. Yes. This was released by the Tennis TV social media account, and it was a, a video about International Women's Day asking the men who is a woman that they admire. So, as you told me privately, you have to wonder about the framing of the question. Mm-hmm. I do believe they should probably hand out some pamphlets about the origins of International Women's Day, its basis in radical workers' movements, because that has... It's not just another Mother's Day. It's not. We've got a Mother's Day. It's not. Um, That origin has really been stripped from International Women's Day, and now it's kind of a corporate holiday for everyone to feel really good about. And before I clicked on the video, I knew every guy in the video was going to pick their mom. Mm-hmm. And before you get nitpicky, yes, I know, Novak picked his dearly departed late coach, and he has spoken quite poignantly about her, and I appreciate that. Felix chose his sister. Before who gets nitpicky? Me? People. People. Because I am going to get nitpicky as well. Okay. I didn't know if you were being preemptive. But basically, every man in the video chose their mom. And as a disclaimer, w- both of us love and admire our mothers very much. That is not in question. However, (laughs) that is not the point of International Women's Day. And it is a bit disturbing that the guys can't identify like any woman that they admire who has not been their personal caretaker. Yeah, but we are not hearing how the question is being asked to them in these segments. Okay. We don't know when this spot was recorded. If it was like months ago, a lot of times these things are done months in advance where, well, let's see who is at this tournament. Let's get them here. Next week, we'll get these three players. The following week, we'll get these other three players. And then we'll put it together and then we'll release it on this day. Mm -hmm. We did not hear what the players were being asked. We only got their responses. So it's possible that it was posed to them outside the realm of International Women's Day, that they didn't know specifically that that is what it was for. And it's also possible that they were asked, who is the most important woman in your life? Or which woman... Or who is a woman you admire? Yes, which woman... The the whole in your life becomes a little bit dicey for people who can't really... And I should say men who can't really think or choose not to think outside of their own little bubble. Okay. Because if I say... You're giving them a lot? I'm giving them a lot. I just want to put that disclaimer out there. If I say to you, wow, who is the most inspirational woman in your life? Right. What would you say? As opposed to saying, who is a woman that inspires you? Yes. But we don't know the question that was posed. We don't. Of course, if you're asked a basic question, a broad question, you're probably thinking, oh, shit, I better say my mom or else I'm in trouble. Right. But because make no mistake in these videos, anytime these players are putting themselves out there, they are just trying to not look like assholes for the most part. They don't want to do anything to hurt their brands. It's why we get the double speak from Federer. It's why all the top players don't give you anything really specific or controversial about anything. That said, 
even when these folks decided to go that route, it was atrocious. And the chief offender for me was Grigor Dimitrov. <laughs> because he spoke for like five minutes in the most circuitous ways about his mother. And the only thing I could take away from it is that he loves his mother. And part of the reason is because he's never seen her have a mood swing. Mm. Which was ghastly. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Ooh, wow. I want what she's having. As you said, maybe Grigor was just the perfect child. Right? <laughs> maybe it was so easy to be his mom. It It is just continuously disappointing to me that the men can only identify women who have been caretakers to them to celebrate. Wimbledon released a video on the same day, but they were prompted which women athletes were you inspired by. And then you get great answers. But why Like, why do you have to be goaded into giving these answers? Why can't you just say Harry Tubman? Do you know who wouldn't have had a problem with that question? Well, I think we know. The only man in tennis. I'll give you a hint. The only active player who has been knighted. We've seen his penis on an x-ray. Uh, we saw a shadow. <laughs> wow. That's, that's really, um, that's objectification. It's a fact. I'm just saying, mm. if you didn't know who we were talking about, that was a clue. Okay. But yeah, it, it was, it was, it was abhorrent. It was Abhor a black mark for all men. I don't, I mean, even I, I don't think would go that far. Let's get into these questions that folks have yes. asked us. Thank this... you for saving the body serve because we may need to stretch out these questions for many episodes in the future, depending on how tennis goes over the next few months. We have not looked through these questions very carefully or intently because they literally just came in. So you, we're, we're kind of going off the cuff here. Yeah. Okay. A timely question from Ian Katz Tennis are you still going to Miami if the tournament is on? That's a big if. The answer is yes, if the tournament is still going on, I think. <laughs> you think? Like, we still have... <laughs> That's my feeling. We have not come to a complete consensus about this We yet. have not. Because so, we also have a backup. Luckily, we have until around Saturday or Sunday to cancel our Airbnb and get back most of the money on it. After that, then we don't really get back the money. We've mm -hmm. already canceled flights. Well, 75% of the flights and gotten refunds for it. Right. And we can rebook those easily. Uh, but we are in a position where we can then transfer those funds from not going to Miami to potentially doing Charleston. Right. And this relates to another question we got recently by GGMP, which is at 4Gs, 2Ms, 2Ps. <laughs> what are the chances of the Volvo car open being canceled? That we do not know. A lot of these questions we just cannot answer. The, the Charleston tournament is celebrating 20 years at the Daniel Island location. They, I imagine, are loath to cancel this. They have a great draw lined up, but uh, I, don't, I don't know. Like, it, it may yet be canceled. Hmm. I think a lot depends on the precedent set by Miami. We don't know what we will be doing. Right now, we want to go to Miami. We absolutely do. Mm -hmm. The we other will thing... Be, we will be bummed if we don't go to Miami. Uh, a consideration for me is that I don't necessarily want to put myself in a position where, yeah, I'm fine, but I inadvertently 
get quarantined. Right. You, and then I have to miss work. And also, like, you, you don't want to get sick even if you'll recover okay. I mean, yeah. there's that. But really, it's the missing work that's the most. Yes. Like, yes. I, I can't stand that hit, really. Or nor do I really want to stand that hit. Right. Because it's not just two weeks. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. And then you're the pariah for like two months. <laughs> Nobody's talking to you because they right. don't want to, you know. The other consideration is that, as you know, we recently did a GoFundMe and uh, a lot of the rationale behind it was to help us go to tournaments and create content from these tournaments. So I don't really want to go to Miami for a vacation if we're not going for tennis. Like this, this is what we asked for funding for. Yeah. You know, we just had a vacation in mexico like that was our our personal leisure vacation i want to use the gofundme money to do real work and uh it's a little bit annoying i mean that's that's a given but (laughs) right when you say that what you're really getting at is that we have we may have to make a decision about miami before the tournament makes a decision about miami right because we don't want to be wasting this gofundme money either Mm-hmm. on money that we can't recoup right. because of cancellation policies. So on the scale of hardships r- related to coronavirus, this is minuscule, we yes. know, but that's, you know, that's just uh, on our mind. So we don't know if the tournaments will go ahead and we don't know if we will go ahead. <laughs> but we may still try for Charleston if Miami falls through. We right. definitely wouldn't be doing both, but it's all just up in the air. Mm-hmm. Now for something completely different. Apropos of nothing, just a philosophical question. What do you think of players taking a bathroom break, quote unquote, to compose themselves mentally after losing a set, as opposed to taking a bathroom break purely for bathroom purposes? This is from the artist formerly known as Anna Marseille. This is a, I feel this is a loaded question because personally I am loath to question someone's bathroom break man or woman you never know what's going on if if they need the bathroom break or not so i i tend to look the other way but i think that this is hinting at strongly that even if it's a bit of gamesmanship Mm -hmm. is it okay if we know like if i were if i were a mind reader and i knew this bathroom break were not entirely legitimate i i'm not a fan i don't like it that's my my personal opinion you're looking at me as if i'm judging no i'd be eager to hear your opinion uh on the face of it i don't really have a problem with it like when naomi was falling apart in that 2019 australian open final i needed to compose herself and she came correct in that third set against petro like i'm okay with that but am i being hypocritical when i don't want it to be a pattern Mm -hmm. i feel like that's where i i have a problem it's the same thing with, like, say, Diana Yastremsko, who has developed this pattern of medical timeouts when she's down in a third set. When you lose a second set and you're going to a third, do you always take a break to go to the bathroom? Don't really like it. Don't really right. like that. It's, it's a boy who cried wolf situation. In general, we try not to look too hard into people's medical timeouts or bathroom breaks. Because you don't know what someone is going through. But when they cry wolf just one too many times, I think it does invite that criticism. You know, there is an argument to say that Naomi should not have left the court and composed herself. And maybe she would have lost. 
And maybe that would have been fair, you know? I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I just have a problem with the the intense hand-wringing over it. You know, like that, it's... Okay. Because at the end of the day, the person comes back and the other person, while they may have been put out a little bit, is still a professional. Yes. It is within the rules. Yeah, that's the important part. It's within mm. the rules. If somebody's doing something outside of the rules, absolutely, that's that's a that's well, a huge that's, issue. That's an easy moral stance to take. But if they're using the rules to kind of ice their opponent, is that fair? Can it be unfair and okay at the same time? It can be like degrees of unfair. Yeah, it, it, there's okay. a lot of gray. There's shades of gray here, and I, I can't like come up with a definitive answer mm-hmm. just just at this moment. Yes, in corporate speak, we would like to take this on an ad hoc basis. Were you expecting a laugh or something? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. Do you know what ad hoc means? I'm not in business speak world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a lowly. Uh, service worker mm-hmm. Just really proletariat mm-hmm. this is a holdover from our last mailbag we didn't quite get to it or it may have been late in arrival i don't quite remember but at willow's court wants to know which country divas do you appreciate most mm. and i'm gonna go first oh okay okay i love me some dolly parton dolly parton is an actual stable genius <laughs> Like Dolly Parton. I thought you were going to say iconic because that word is overused, but if anyone is iconic, quite literally, Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton wrote I Will Always Love You and Jolene in the same afternoon. Really? Like these are two really? songs that just changed the music landscape. I mean, these are they, enduring. These, these are, are titanic like, songs. These are songs you'd put in a time capsule or that you'd shoot to Mars, you know? Like Jolene. Don't take him just because you can. Like that whole line, just because you can. That guitar riff that opens it. Lord. And then you learn, we because we've been listening to Dolly Parton's America, we learn about the origin story of Dolly Parton's career and how she paid her dues on that talk show. I don't remember oh, his the name. Porter Wagoner. Yes. Yeah. For all those years. But this woman was just bursting with so much talent, but couldn't get taken seriously. Because of her appearances and her voice. Mm-hmm. And, and learned how to leverage yeah. that stuff and use it as a joke. Yeah. But her, get her work out there. Her boobs are a joke. And she's in on that joke. Mm-hmm. And she said it many, many, many times. And her voice is still amazing to this day. She's an actress, 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. She, but, but the songwriting, forget it. Yes. Like the songwriting, what she's contributed to the American songbook is unparalleled. And the Dixie Chicks. Timely, they're yeah, back. For real. Talking about gaslighter, denier. <laughs> this is the karaoke portion of the episode. <laughs> I, I like to sing as much as I can on the show because you, who you like to remind me that you are a musician. Mm-hmm. Because you play the clarinet and you can sing. Okay, girl, have that. Us who don't have tone or can hear tone. Pitch. Or pitch or whatever or don't know the terminologies but like... <laughs> To enjoy ourselves, <laughs> but get oppressed on the daily. You've, you've never enjoyed anything I've ever sung. You can't even deny well, it. Well, I mean, you're, it's like, you're just not a singer. You can't even, like, I'll be, there's certain songs where I can actually sing in key. Mm-hmm, that's true. 
and you can't even say like, oh, wow, that was good. You were like, oh, wow, how do you manage to do that when you <laughs> suck at everything else? <laughs> this is the answer to why Jonathan is so mean to me on air. Some of you took that question very seriously. It actually wasn't a real question. Like I made it up. Um, but <laughs> Listen, y'all don't even really know. Like we've worked together before. We have. Yes, we and have worked all together. these folks to this day think that he is an angel and that I'm a mean, crusty ass bitch. Like well, my the, well. my work home separation persona is so stark. I'm all about getting through it at work. And you're just like, hey, girl, what's going on? Like, let's shoot the shit. And so people have this uh, misconception right. that you are the nice one and I'm the mean one. When in fact, when we're at home behind closed doors, <laughs> mm-hmm. the opposite may be true. That's wild. <laughs> I am I am an angel at work. I'm extremely calm, uh, cool as a cucumber. He was even given an award called the Zen Master. Which he came home and showed me that piece of paper, and I was like, "I." You even laughed I when you showed it to me because you know it's, it's it bullshit. You. That is a side of you that you have kept hidden for thirteen years <laughs> from you. Yes, that should tell you like what you elicit from me. Wow. <laughs> um, we we are not country experts. No, we. I guess I would say we are appreciators, but I don't. I just don't really have a broad knowledge of country music but i will say i love tammy wynette i love some of the classic country you're you're a big patsy klein fan i grew up with patsy klein my mother had patsy klein albums crazy walking after midnight she's got you amazing song i like i don't want to play house from tammy wynette and divorce i grew Um, up with crystal gale in my house as well oh loretta lynn's sister yep I uh, I love the storytelling of country music. It's not it doesn't elicit the same feelings in me as does R and B and soul and Motown, where it, it I feel the music necessarily. It can happen, mm. such as with uh, "Not Ready to Make Nice." Like yeah. that is still one of my big "I'm gonna like fuck up this day" song. Yeah, but it's really like really more of a pop rock record. Yeah. but the storytelling is amazing, and I also love Miss Reba McIntyre. One of the mm-hmm. albums that I've burnt out is the duets album with Reba and all these artists. Yeah. So my grandparents were really in the country when I was little, which is weird because they are first generation Italian Americans. They grew up in Rochester, New York. Um, I don't know how they got in the country, but they did. And Reba was my grandfather's absolute favorite. So I have like a sentimental place for Reba. Personally, I like Martina McBride's voice a lot. Was Never really took to Carrie Underwood on American Idol, but there's a lot of songs from her first album that I like. Yes. Jesus Take the Wheel. And also, just on a personal note, Don't Forget to Remember Me. Yes. If you can't feel something with that song, like, come on. There's a 50 in the ashtray in case you run short on gas. (laughs) These little details in country music lyrics. That said... I don't know any of the countrymen. Oh, oh my God. How did I forget? Casey Musgraves. Hello. Yes, yes, yes. The winner of the Grammy for Album of the Year last year. Just, again, someone who has really expanded outside of the country genre, strictly speaking. And she's been very critical of Nashville radio and stuff like that. But just this kind of vast, mystical appreciation of nature that country music affords her. 
I oh my god, I loved her last album so much. I don't really know her music. <laughs> I know her, but I don't really know her music. Oh. I trust you on that. What I was saying before is I do not like male country singers. I do not like male country singers. I think they all a lot of them can really sing though. They can, but it's just so affected. Yeah. Like why does Keith Urban sound like that when he's singing? Like, dude, you're Australian. Like, it, it makes no sense. It's yeah. one of the mysteries of the world. The accent work is very interesting. Why aren't people mad about that? Like, <laughs> the cultural appropriation. Right? Iggy Azalea. It's a little bit different because of race. Fine, but <laughs> there's still a cultural appropriation. There's still cultural appropriation going on there. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the question. This was fun. Sorry, Doctor Scholes, but you were upended. <gasps> you were busy, so we got another. F. Mary Kill. We got an FMK submission from John. We're not going to give more information about your handle or your name or whatever because, you know. In case he does not want to be exposed. He wasn't submitted publicly, shall we say. And this is the first FMK, I believe, that hasn't been submitted by Dr. Scholl. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this one is 90s superstars Pete Sampras, Andre Agassi, Patrick Rafter. Okay, I'll go first. This this is so easy for me. F. Patrick Rafter, then and now. Marry Andre Agassi. I think, you know, marrying Andre in the 90s would have been difficult. We know he was using crystal meth. <laughs> <laughs> Not regularly, but by his own admission. <laughs> it would have been exciting. You'd have hung, you'd, you'd have hung out with Barbara Streisand. Oh my God, I would have met Brooke Barbara. Shields. You'd have been a big wig in the Democratic wow. circles. I would love to you meet definitely would have been to the White House. Talk about a legend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Andre would have been a huge handful in the 90s. Steffi Graf has probably got the best version of him at the moment. But I would marry Andre. And sorry, Pete, the, the decision to kill Pete is pretty easy. According to Andre, he's a bad tipper. That, that's, <laughs> that's enough for me, really. <laughs> And I just never, I never took to to Peter Sampras. Listen, but what lens are we looking at this through? Are we well, looking at it from... Let's do that. Let's say 1997. Are we talking about us as mid-30-year-olds looking back at them as active tennis players? Are we excluding what they look like now? Knowing what they would look like if you stayed married to them? No, no, no. Do one version, let's say 97, with us, us the same age. Because we... We cannot imagine what no, but would that's, have thought that's back totally then. different. Andre Agassi in 1989, Andre Agassi in 1994, Andre Agassi in 1998 when he's like bald and fit. Like that's totally different. There is no scenario in which Patrick Rafter is not the F. For I'm me, sorry. I was not into Patrick Rafter in that way okay. when I was watching tennis live. I thought it was totally overdone. Okay. But as an adult, as a nearing middle-aged man, mm-hmm. I get it. You get the the daddy appeal? I get him back then. Oh, okay. And I understand him now if I were like 10 years old. Wait. <laughs> what? I'm just saying maybe not him now for me. Uh-huh. Now. Well, but we're choosing from a pool of three. I understand, but I'm just saying you make it seem like it's so easy with these three to look at them at one specific time, but you cannot. Okay. Oh, okay. With the exception of Sampras, because I don't think I would pay any attention to him at any time. Right. So you just want to problematize this. Sure. I'm just saying there's a lot to consider. That Mm -hmm. said, I would do the same as you. Okay. I would F. Rafter. 
I would marry Agassiz. <sighs> you know, I would rather marry Agassiz in the 90s, frankly. Like, really? He just seems a little bit too boring for me right now. I do feel that the 90s marriage would end in a very ugly divorce, though. Don't I'd, you? I'd get paid. I'd yes. be able to move on. I'd have seen the world, done some things. Right. I don't mean that it's a bad thing. No. But the marriage would not last. It, that's okay. I don't need to be committing to somebody for, like, more than 10 years. I've already done that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I don't have any money to give you, so... <laughs> And uh, I don't want to say too much about Pete Sampras without inflaming people unnecessarily. He's not even an active tennis player at this point. Right. It's... Are there, like, serious partisans? Oh, yeah. I mean, this I, is not the big I mean, three. serious yeah. partisans is a maybe a bit of a stretch, but there are folks who are definitely big Sampras stands. Okay. I will say, had the, the trio been Sampras, Agassi, Courier, this would have been an extremely difficult and fraught decision. Another light-hearted question from Tom Hogan. It's not tennis-related, but I'm interested in your thoughts on how the Sherry Pie situation should be handled. Not sure I'd call this light-hearted. That's true. <laughs> well, in that, we, we could be a little bit more off-the-cuff and playful right. with it, but it is very serious subject matter. Yes. For those of you who do not know, Sherry Pie is a contestant on this season of RuPaul's Drag Race, which just uh, debuted about two weeks ago. She has been accused and admitted to basically catfishing and coercing men into sexual acts online, right? Like, am I missing anything? And in person. And in person. And filming it without their knowledge. Like this, Basically, this, like, really gross, abusive Me Too stuff. Yeah, this is... It's totally wild. It was the same... <laughs> it was a, a playbook that she had. She would prey on people that she would be working with because she was an actress at one... Actor. Yeah. I mean, he, drag. this is a, a drag queen who identifies as a he. Yeah. So um, he, as an actor, would be doing theater shows. It wasn't theater school. Like, this started from years ago, being in, in school. And then when he was getting working gigs, it would continue. And the through line was that he would always contact these people with this one name saying i'm uh, like a casting director a casting right? director and i'm working on this one project and it's always the same project and so how this dude was found out was that eventually some of these folks who were preyed upon would meet up and or or hear inadvertently about this project that they were working right. on and then they'd share stories and be like uh this casting director never existed yeah and you know like the gay world in major cities is very small there are, there are very few degrees of separation between most of us. but We're pretty isolated in Toronto. <laughs> but really, like if yeah. you're in New York... If you're part of the scene. A lot of people in the gay community know people who know people. Mm. And this is going to get around. Um, if you know Drag Race, you know that the season is filmed well in advance. So Sherry Pie apparently is all over the season. She is rumored to have made the top four... Retroactively, she has been disqualified from RuPaul's Drag Race, but the entire season is going to go on with her appearing in the episodes. Yeah. Like, I don't know how you fix this, but it sucks because the the premiere of season 12 was met with rapture. I mean, it was joyous. It was hilarious. It was just very high entertainment value. It was a two-part premiere where they did half the queens on one, half the queens on the second, 
that premiere that you're talking about specifically, Sherapai was not on that one. Right. So the, the second one that Sherapai was on was noticeably less exemplary. It was. So the first part of the premiere had the queens performing the song that was written for Drag Race. Nicki Minaj was a guest judge. The song, they usually kind of suck. Like the songs that are composed for the contest are really like not very good usually. This one you could hear on the radio. Like it was lit and the just the abundance of talent across both premieres was notable. But now we have to watch this entire season under the specter yes. of this. Yeah, it sucks. And then another contestant, Britta, was accused from her drag Dwada of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. Like, so how do you watch the season now and really enjoy any of it? Because there, they're going to be in it. There was the hope that this season would be a return to form because Drag Race has been a bit oversaturated in recent yes, years. Yes, that's a good one. And so it. that there was the prospect of something really good excited a lot of the fan base for mm-hmm. the season. And now there's just a dark cloud over it. And and what can they do? If Sherpai has made the final four, that means we have like 10 more episodes of her in the show. And yeah. then the, the finale is filmed much later on. So they'll edit her out of that. And right, then right. it'll just be, you know, a top three. But each week there are these asides, these confessionals where the drag queens are providing the color commentary for the show. And in that first episode that she was in, she was featured a lot. A lot. And so if she's going to be featured that much going forward, I am not going to be about that life. Right. Because this is absolutely abhorrent behavior. Yeah. This is stuff that should land you in prison, frankly, as far oh, as I'm of concerned. Yes. There were definitely crimes committed. Yeah. Sexual crimes were yeah. committed. The news came out very shortly before the second episode was released. So I'm wondering if they're doing some furious edi- editing behind the scenes to kind of change the narrative of each episode. Because if she factored heavily in the confessionals, for example, if she was a great talking head, like someone like Monique Hart, they might have to change that shit for the rest of the season because it's not going to play well. That is something that they absolutely have control over and yes. that's something that they should yes. do. That's probably the only thing at this point right. that they if, can do. I mean, if she won a bunch of challenges, you can't really change that, but you can sort of lessen that person's screen time. And they can also do more diligence with their casting going forward. Yeah. Not that they could have necessarily caught this, but the fact that there's so many contestants this year that have question marks about them it, it really right. begs the question how thoroughly are you vetting these queens yeah. because if somebody works in drag you can talk to like girl they know they're like five people removed if you talk to this person who refers it to that person who refers it to that person you will get the tea yeah oh my god aja a previous contestant from all stars and a regular season said that her ex-boyfriend was victimized by this person like she knew about it so thank you, Tom, for that diversion. So how it should be handled, um, that's tougher <laughs> to answer. We know how it shouldn't be handled. At Francis underscore Withane asks, thoughts on Kleister's comeback so far would be interesting. We've answered this, I guess, a little bit earlier in the show. And then on a pre... The last mailbag, yeah. we did one as well. But yeah. I guess it's still I evolving. Think, I think the jury's still out. And now that... We don't know if these tournaments are going forward. Um, it's hard to say. Like, she's only played two matches. They've been against 
Muguruza and Kanto. And she's been competitive, very competitive in both. Right. So she hasn't won a match in her comeback, but it's not like she has gone up against low talent. Her serving in that second match against Kanto to start, she had like, what, five aces through two service games? Mm -hmm. Wild stuff. Wild scenes on that tennis court. (laughs) Her forehand is still there. Her inside-out backhand is still the truth. The scrambling will get better, I assume. I I worry about her fitness. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the thing that, that concerns me most. She talked about, I'll see you next year to the Monterey oh, peoples okay. in her tweet. And so if this is a, a semi-long-term comeback where she's committed to it for, say, two years, where she'll continue to ramp up, ramp up, and get better and become more fit then I wouldn't be concerned. But if this is like, well, let me see how I do for the first four months and see if it's worth it to me with my family and missing time with them or what have you, then maybe it might not be worth it if, you know, she's right. she's right. not winning these matches more regularly. But I mean, I'd love to see a sustained comeback from her. Hard work is is never something that she lacked. You know, I always believe that she's putting in the work behind the scenes. Mm. I don't think she's deluded about that part about it. Right. A loaded question from Sumit at love underscore 30. What do you think the ATP should do to ensure that its members treat women's tennis players as equals? (laughs) There are a lot of presuppositions in that question, aren't there? But ones that uh, I think we hinge on as a podcast. My sort of my outlook on the world is that more education and more knowledge is always good. Like, you can never have too much. You can never read too much. You know, you always benefit from pursuing more enlightenment. So that's really where it starts. I think a lot of the ATP guys don't, simply don't get it. A lot of times it's not malicious. But why, like, why should women be the only ones to learn the origin story of women's tennis? Mm, Right? Well, the majority of them do, but I'm not convinced that they take it in as well. What do you mean? Who? The woman. Okay, sure. Right, but we, I mean, we, we believe expect that them to know. The WTA should should be proud of its origins, right? And should be teaching young female tennis players like, hey, this is, this is where it started. But why shouldn't men learn that as well, mm. right? I would suggest a book club. These these tennis players are on the road all the time. There's and, only so much PlayStation you can play. And there is a lot of leisure time. There is. There's a lot of downtime. There's only so much PlayStation and FIFA you can play because these European guys are always playing FIFA. Yeah. Maybe they need an RA. They need an <laughs> ATP RA who does programs for them that are educational. Maybe if you go out, you should not be kissing women whose names are Pamela because they may have cocaine residue in their mouth. <laughs> like that that's something useful to learn. Yeah. But also mm-hmm. you could learn about the origin story of the WTA. It might not be necessarily deep critical academic reading, but a simple thing like, well let's watch Battle of the Sexes. Let's have a movie night. <laughs> and maybe that will pique some interest. I mean oh, this right, sounds right. condescending and patronizing, which I don't apologize to them no because some of these guys invite exactly the pet, but at the same time you kind of have to still dumb it down to some of these guys right i mean if you know if you read billy jean king's autobiography you get three cookies today read martina navratilova's book in the 80s or one of them like there's some wildly entertaining mm-hmm. stuff in there or really just go on sports illustrated vault mm-hmm. and read a few articles it doesn't take that long 
we're making light of this, but I no, think... No, I'm being dead serious oh, about okay. this book club. But realistically, I think a lot more interaction and kind of direct action with the WTA tour toward issues that they both care about, that players have vested interests in, and that it transcends gender. I think that can build a lot of rapport and a lot of appreciation between men and women if you're both fighting for the same thing. So join your prize money fight with the WTA Players Council. Fight for benefits, fight for paid sick leave alongside each other, and I think that really engenders appreciation, or at least understanding. That is, uh, it, it's such a difficult yes, project to undertake. Yes, I know, it sounds like industrial workers, like international workers no, in the I'm world. No, I'm not even just like, saying that. I'm saying it's such a difficult project to undertake to untwine the socialization of these men, to think of not just women athletes, but women in general as being inferior, as being the the ones who should be caring for them. Who should be making sure that their laundry is mm -hmm. done, who cook for sure, them, sure. who have their children, who look pretty, who they can take to the the players' party as their arm candy. Yes. I mean, a lot of these men are Neanderthals, to be clear. <laughs> but some of them are not. And those players who are not maybe can lead the way. But I think also they need to understand that economically, they share a lot of common interests. Mm -hmm. I think workplace issues can can kind of bridge that gap because we have to look at commonalities if you're going to sort of make change i think you're looking at it we're looking at it from two different perspectives here uh -huh. not that we don't see I'm where the other is coming i'm from. looking at it from the bernie sanders perspective uh <laughs> <laughs> i am looking at looking at it from the elizabeth warren special ed class perspective hey listen <laughs> when my new york primary ballot comes in i'm still going to write her in okay <laughs> My point is that these are two drastically different ways to look at it, mm. both necessary perhaps, but I just think that while you have the Andy Moores of the world out here able to fight and infiltrate and make change on a much higher plane, mm. we need to have like ground level baby steps working at the same time. Sure. Okay. We're going to end this episode with a question from... Adam Van Ruyen, I don't quite know if I'm pronouncing that properly, but it's at ADDM underscore tweets, at Adam underscore tweets. It's a question that we didn't quite get to on our previous episode, or previous mailbag episode, partly because it's one that we've answered before. Or I think, like, I think we've answered variations of it. So the question is, do you think we'll see an openly gay player in this coming generation? And to be clear, it's still a great question. Right. And, and uh, my answer is yes, I think it's coming. And we have talked a lot about the things that need to happen to create the conditions to make people safe and comfortable about coming out. But a, a lot of times, as we know, as queer people, we come out in very hostile environments. We don't need the conditions to be right in order to come out. And I, I do think that in this coming generation, in the next 10 years, we will have openly gay and or queer players on the ATP. I think, I feel very strongly about that. Who they are, no idea, <laughs> right? Like, I'm not going to speculate if, if we know their names already. I don't know. But I think that tennis eventually is going to follow the rest of the world. Right now, it's woefully behind. I would assume, yes, as for how long it will take. I don't know. 
I'm just kind of less hopeful as the days, the weeks, the months, the years go on when every single issue that we we see male players deal with on the ATP is by and large inadequate. It's yeah. it's deflating to me. Whatever steam I build up intellectually and emotionally toward this issue just kind of gets let out whenever stuff like this happens because outside of again Andy Murray who's <laughs> able to engage in these issues outside of rote answers I, I just don't know I'm sure there are a lot of guys a, young, a lot of younger guys who are like uh yeah I don't care right a lot of these younger guys have gay friends like yeah. there's no doubt about it right yeah even some of their bros and I I understand your perspective completely but I think we have to look at how far the discourse has come in the past decade. Like, we're in a place where top players, top male players are being forced to answer these questions. And that was not the case 10 years ago. They are being forced to reckon with the Margaret Court legacy in ways that would not have happened 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Like, it is slow. The change is slow, to be sure. But it is happening. Do I think an asteroid will hit the Earth and there'll be no more tennis before a gay player comes out? No. I don't think that that's the case. You know, but as is the theme of this episode, we don't know. We simply don't know. A lot of things are possible. But I would assume that it would happen. A timeline I can't give you. I'm just saying my personal space that I'm in is just not one of being very hopeful for for Mm. any of this stuff. Because there's going to be a lot of... A lot of shit that comes with it. Yeah. That's going to be difficult to watch. Right. To be the first, it, it's going to be painful. That that person is going to have a, a disproportionate burden. For the purpose of making wholesale change in the sporting culture, you hope it's somebody that gets to the top of the sport, bulldozes their way, and just like, yeah, plants their pride flag and is like, what of it? <laughs> and then everybody has to reckon with it. The NBA is in a good space right now, but what would the NBA have looked like if in 1990 Michael Jordan had come out? That would have been well, incredible. Right, right. Incredible. And it's it's not a mutually exclusive thing for someone to be gay and the very best at their sport athletically. Right. Those people um, can exist. Bill Tilden existed. Exactly. You know. So... Martina Navratilova existed. Yeah. So you can hash out whether it would be easier for somebody to come out as number one in this current climate or whether it's easier at number 50 or what have you. But like, what is the change that can be made scale-wise compared to like, say, the number 150 player who plays like a handful of tour events and somebody who's a top 10 player? Right. And personally, I don't care that much. But it does make a difference if the person is an active player. Because there's a lot to reckon with if you're an active player. Mm -hmm. It's a question of small steps versus coming in like a wrecking ball (laughs) and destroying the current structure of things. Which is what I I want destruction right now. Mm -hmm. That's that's how I feel (laughs) about many things. I want destruction. (laughs) Thank you all for the questions. You gave us a lot of content that we wouldn't have. We're going to save some for future episodes because who knows what the future brings in the next few months. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps tide you over in the coming non-tennis weeks. I am James at Elliot JMR on Twitter. Two L's, two T's. I'm Jonathan. You can find me at tennis underscore John. 
We are at the Body Surf on both Twitter and Instagram. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. Till next time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much.